This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the October episode of Radio Astronomy, listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to theoretical physicist, broadcaster and author Jim Al-Khalili and telling you our top stargazing tip to see in this month's night sky. But one of the big things that we have in this month's issue that we've all been sitting on for quite a while is the announcement of Insight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards 2019. Yay. Start time again. Yes, so hopefully by the time you're listening to this podcast, the winners should have been revealed to the world. Um, And we've, because we've been involved with the the process from the very beginning, um, we've been waiting to sort of reveal these things to the world because there are some absolutely beautiful images, aren't there? Yeah, completely. I mean, as usual, you know, all the kind of stuff that comes in the Aurora category is is immediately um, amazing. I mean, I I think this this year's winner... um, is kind of one of those images that once you understand the the technical processing behind it and the actual science that's going on, I think it makes it even even more incredible. Mm. If you haven't seen the the um, pictures yet, you can see them on www.skyatnightmagazine.com. Um, but it's this wonderful image of the lunar eclipse, and it, it's it's several images stacked on top of each other showing the eclipse as it fades out, and it's very striking. Very graphic. Yeah, and it, it reveals the shadow of Earth, doesn't it? Through through its mm-hmm. through through the kind of thirty five phases that are kind of placed on top of each other. Yes. It's uh, quite something. 
But um, as, as far as I'm aware, anyway, um, once this goes out, they will be all, all the winners and the runners up and the highly recommended and some of the shortlisted will be available to see in a um, exhibition at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Yes. So if you if you happen to be in the area and you, and you want to see some amazing astrophotos, um, yeah, pop into the National Maritime Museum. Mm-hmm. It's some incredible um, and interesting different ways of, of, of sort of approaching the, the, the topics this year. Yeah, definitely, because there's, there's quite a lot of categories. I mean, kind of going from stuff like people in space, which is kind of nightscapes and humanity's relationship with the cosmos, to, you know, planets and nebulae and comets and asteroids. And um, yeah, there's there's kind of, you know, if, if you're if you're an astrophotographer, professional or amateur, I think you'll you'll find, you know, something kind of probably quite similar to your own work and, and something that you'll kind of take interest from from uh, this year's uh, selection. And uh, keep an eye on the magazine because we often run masterclasses showing how the winners have created their amazing shots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So if you feel like competing next year, make sure you to read BBC Sky Night magazine and we'll give you all the tips that you need to hopefully win. But also we've got uh, we've got our usual array of news stories appearing in uh, this month's magazine. Um, and I've been particularly interested by one from uh, Chris Lintott's Cutting Edge column where he's talking about runaway stars from the Milky Way. Um, so he was talking about the star with a catchy name, as always, of <laughs> S5HVS1. Um I'm just going to call that S5, uh, <laughs> um, which has been spotted uh, racing away from the centre of the galaxy. Um, and it was spotted by the Anglo-Australian Telescope travelling at 1,755 kilometres per second. That's about 6 million kilometres per hour. So a bit speedy. Yeah, pretty fast. Quite fast. <laughs> Um, and it's it's moving away from the galaxy, and they managed to trace this its path right back um, to where they think it came from um, to the central black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Yeah. So they think what happened is that about five million years ago, um, this star S five was in a binary pair with another star um, that both of them got a bit too close to the centre black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Um, and when you get sort of three bodies in a gravitational system like that some strange things can happen and occasionally one gets thrown out um at very high speed which is what they think's happened here we we've already know about some of these like incredibly hypervelocity stars but this is one of the first times that we've actually been able to say pretty definitively yes this was definitely kicked out by our central black hole mm. um I, re- I really like that like the idea that it was like um traveling through the galaxy for millions of years and then observed by an observatory on earth because i was thinking mm. about that and that's kind of like so that was like millions of years ago it started on its journey and within that time the human race evolved and built a massive observatory and then observed it as it was speeding past. I know, it's right? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, like if if you start driving your car from California towards New York and and on the way they build like a service station and it's there by the time you get there. It's just it's it's completely crazy to think to think that, <laughs> that it's been going that long. Yeah. It's admittedly they have the, the they think that there's probably other a lot of other these hypervelocity stars out there. It's mm. just we haven't really been able to to see them until now. That hopefully should change over the coming years with the uh, Gaia telescope, which is a telescope from the European Space Agency. It is monitoring a billion stars. But I think actually now it's gone up to about almost or possibly even more than two billion stars that it's keeping track of to try and make the the most accurate map ever of the Milky Way, at least nearby to us and they're trying to uh and they, they think that will hopefully show up more of these hypervelocity stars 
Yeah, the, the other really interesting thing from what like uh, Chris Lintot says in the in the mag is is the science that you can learn from something like this because mm. I think it's it's one thing to kind of be able to observe a speeding star, but it's another thing to kind of go right. Well, how can we use this to learn more about the universe? And he kind of says that like that they can use the observations to refine our understanding of the position of the sun, um, and 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 therefore get a kind of better idea of our own position, you know, within the galaxy. And it can also be used to kind of better understand the distribution of dark matter and things like this. It's just mm-hmm. that kind of thing blows my mind, you know. That you can like, there are people clever enough to kind of go right. This speeding star, we can use it to work out all this other stuff that we want to know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the the weird things that I'm I'm not 100 percent sure exactly how they managed to make this measurement, but they could use the star to measure how far away Earth was from the the central black hole, mm. um, and they measured it as being we are twenty six thousand four hundred and eighty four light years away from the central black hole. That's cool. Um, which is 250 million billion kilometres, <laughs> which is a lot of kilometres. That's 15, no, 16 zeros after a 25. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as That's I say. That's a big number. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. As I say, it's, it's, it's that ability to use observations to understand more about the universe. It just, it, it just continues to blow my mind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, one of the other, one of the other big kind of news stories this month was um, an, an update in the uh, Osiris Rex mission, um, which has selected its four uh, sample site candidates. Um, in case anyone's not aware of the Osiris Rex mission, um, it's a sample collection mission at an asteroid, um, an asteroid called Bennu. Um, the spacecraft launched in 2016 and it arrived uh, at the asteroid in 2018. And since then, it's basically basically been mapping the asteroid, flying around and, and looking at it and analysing it to get um, to find the safest spots to basically collect um, pebbles and dust from the asteroid and then return it to Earth um, by 2023, I believe. Um, And Earth-based observations had initially suggested that the asteroid was kind of had lots of what what the scientists call ponds of um, fine dust. But then actually once the spacecraft got to the asteroid and started analysing a bit more, it became... um, clear that the asteroid is more kind of filled of boulders and potentially dangerous places to land. So then it had to go through the whole process of of finding potential um, places to to extract uh, to extract samples. Um, but it, but interestingly, um, the mission time line had actually uh, scheduled in over 300 days um, of like extra time kind of to allow for for complications. Um, and I almost kind of felt quite uh vindicated by this because because anyone who knows me knows that I I, I turn up turn up at uh, airports and, and things like that far too early like <laughs> like, like hours early because I always think well you've got to leave time for like for you know for things to go wrong and, and now I can kind of say well you know the Osiris Rex scientists um, built in 300 extra days to their mission so I think it's also because there's another um, asteroid it's a very similar project which is being done by the Japanese space agency which is Hayabusa 2 yeah and that it's it's just when you compare the two, it's basically they got there at the same time, but Hayabusa 2 was just kind of like, yeah, we're going to put our rovers down. There we go. Things on the surface. Okay, now we're taking our samples. We've got the samples. Okay, we're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the, because I don't think Osiris Rex is planning on leave, uh, even touching down until 2020. Yeah. At which point Hayabusa 2 will have already been, because it's, it's Hayabusa 2 is heading home in about December this year. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just two very different kind of, approaches to yeah. the mission. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, is it to do with the sample collection method? Because 
Osiris Rex is going, has, has got this kind of extendable arm that's going to touch down on the surface of the asteroid for, I think it's five seconds, and release yeah. a burst of nitrogen gas, which will, you know, bring up all the kind of dust and, and debris, and it's going to collect that. Whereas, from memory, the Hayabusa 2 mission is like firing a titanium bullet into the... <laughs> that was one of the things they did. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so partly with Osiris Rex, it's like they've only got... like. They've got only got so much of this gas all on board. Yeah. Once it's gone, they can't do to have any more attempts. Whereas with Hayabusa two, they had the first attempt, which was literally just going to like I'm going to try and pick up whatever's on the surface, um, and then they yeah they basically shot it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the idea with most of the times when they are firing like a big heavy weight um, at a comet or an asteroid is they're trying because um, there's been other situations where they've done this uh, like deep impact is one of the big ones um, which was our comet um, the idea of that is to try and sort of clear away the surface material which has been exposed to space and the sun oh, yeah. and so you can get into to the real sort of like pristine stuff beneath without having to take massive drills which are quite hard to use on an asteroid because every time you try and put your drill in you bounce off into space <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean because it it kind of comes back to the to the core of these kind of comet uh, and asteroid missions which um, is again, it's it's something we've said in the podcast a, a few times, but it's you know, comets and asteroids are kind of left over from the formation of the solar system, so they kind of ultimately become these primordial time capsules. Where if you can, you know, learn more about the composition and and, and the chemics and the organics and things like that, you can effectively learn more about you know what the early, early solar system might have been like. So yeah, as you say, is those asteroids have been kind of being hit by radiation from the sun for so long that mm. that, that they're kind of no longer these pristine. Yeah. These pristine um, samples. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I thought it was interesting that they're all um, named after sites or named after birds of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I thought that was sweet because yeah. obviously Osiris is a, a Egyptian god. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it's uh, nightingale, kingfisher, osprey and sandpiper. They're all birds native mm-hmm. to Egypt um, because a Osiris apparently was, and I, I just looked this up this morning. So, you know, I, I, I am definitely not an, an Egyptian theologian, but um, they, uh, yeah, Osiris was supposed an ancient Egyptian god who was supposed to have um, spread the knowledge of agriculture to Egypt, um, which is kind of effectively bringing bring the ancient world back to life, which is what the Osiris Rex mission is supposed to do. Mm. And I think Bennu was a god who was said to have played a role in the creation of of the world, mm. um, which kind of links back to asteroids being kind of primordial time capsules from the early solar system. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, if you want to keep up with the Osiris Rex uh, mission, there's a pretty cool website. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, sample collection is due uh, the latter half of 2020 with a return to Earth by 2023. So it'll be really interesting to see um, what kind of science comes from the Hayabusa 2 and the Osiris-Rex missions. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
16 years from today, Greg Gerstner will finally land the perfect cannonball. Epic Splash. Unsuspecting friends. A work of art only possible because Greg is already meeting all these same people at AARP volunteer and community events that keep him active and involved and help make sure his happiness lives as long as he does. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash local. I was particularly interested this month uh, in the story about microscopic tardigrades invading the moon. Um, basically, the story is about Israel's Bereshit spacecraft, the first private lander to land on the moon's surface, and how it crashed in the Sea of Serenity on 22nd of April earlier this year, probably spilling most of its unusual payload in the process, uh, which contained thousands of tardigrades. Um, they're Earth's hardiest microscopic species. Each one measures under one millimetre, and they're commonly known as water bears or moss piglets. Mm. I've not heard that one <laughs> before. Heard that's, that's really good. I'm yeah. using that one now. Yeah. That's a good band name, actually. <laughs> moss piglets. Yeah, um, they're exceptionally hardy. Um, they've li- they've found living in the An- Antarctica and scorching deserts, and research has shown that they can survive being frozen in liquid helium or being boiled to 149 degrees centigrade. The secret of their survival is their ability to transform to a dormant state where they shrivel to the size of a seed-like pod, expelling all their water, slowing their metabolism, um, and they can be revived many years later. The thousands of tardigrades that travelled to the moon were in this dormant state, part of Bereshit's lunar library, which is a Noah's Ark-type library containing DNA samples of life on Earth um, and that includes the microscopic creatures. Um, and I guess this raises a couple of questions. Firstly, whether tardigrades can survive on the lunar surface. And this is extremely unlikely um, because although they could be revived if they're brought back to Earth, there's no atmosphere and water to do so on the moon. Mm. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, it's perhaps surprising that the mission was allowed to take these organisms to the moon in the first place. Um, And apparently, because the moon is considered lifeless, NASA's Office of Planetary Protection doesn't frown on missions that spill organisms on its surface. Um, This also applied to the Apollo astronauts who left microbes in their bags of waste. It's uh, one of the reasons why they think that they might have got away with putting these microbes on the moon is the people who did it didn't actually tell anyone that they were putting these water bears yeah. oh, right. on the, their lander. They they had permission to put the the sort of like the library of the world's knowledge thing that, they, that it was in, but they didn't tell anybody they were putting these dormant water bear tardigrades on as well. Um, these moss piglets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I- is... Bit worrying. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely raised quite a lot of um, ethical questions um, online. Anyway, if you were kind of following this uh, story, you know, in the various um, online science news outlets and on Twitter and things like that. I mean, I think um, Monica Grady kind of wrote, wrote a piece that, that appeared online, and she, and she was kind of saying, you know, this this you know, it, it does kind of raise questions as to how we 
treat the the, the solar system and, and and space as as we kind of continue to spread out. Um, and I think she she made the point that you know what if, what if this had been Mars? You know, mm. like, you know, like the Moon is lifeless, but like Mars or Europa or Enceladus yeah. or one of those places where we think there might actually be microbes in life. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if we're going to kind of return to the Moon with a permanent base and and actually have humans living there constantly, as, as we now do the ISS, um, do we need to kind of then therefore look more carefully at, at, at what we do or I don't know maybe maybe it doesn't matter because the moon is a, a lifeless rock I don't know I think it's one of those things it's almost good that this happened on the moon where it probably doesn't matter because it's got people talking about it and thinking about it and you know we've got people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who are talking about heading off onto Mars and these are private companies that are thinking about doing it and we people are sort of saying that we we need to start creating space legislature, yeah. which is not as exciting as saying, yeah, we're going to go off to the moon. But also, you know, companies forging ahead into the wilds unknown without any sort of people looking over their shoulder hasn't gone terribly well in the past. <laughs> um, and is that really a sort of something we want to carry on into the future? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it does it does kind of bring us quite quite comfortably on to um, this episode's interview um, because World Space Week is the 4th to 10th of October. So by the time you're listening to this, it might well already be World Space Week. Um, and this year, the subject is humanity's return to the moon and how we can use it as a launch pad to potential manned missions to Mars. Uh, this week, I got the chance to chat to Jim Al-Khalili uh, about theoretical physics and the challenges facing humanity. But I began by asking Jim his thoughts on the prospect of humans returning to the lunar surface. Well, I've, I mean, I was uh, well, seven years old when Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon, so I don't really remember much of it. But uh, it is exciting that now, finally, half a century later, uh, we have not just the US, but a number of countries all planning missions to have sort of human spaceflight, manned spaceflight to, 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 to the moon in the coming few years. It is very exciting. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's 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 a puzzle. Why why, you know, the, we've been to the moon, we've done that, uh, and it's a boring place. Uh, let's focus on something more exotic. Actually, I think uh, it 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 is very exciting that finally we're going to 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 get people back down on on the moon, and for for lots of different reasons that uh, that, that I think are of interest scientifically, of interest. Uh, um, for for more ambitious space flights further afield, even for sort of for, for developing and testing technologies, or for, for for mining, or for for space tourism, even. So I think there's a whole host of different reasons that that make it uh, uh, attractive, exciting, and even economically viable. Because that's what's been the, the the issue in the past that it's just there hasn't been the political will, but also it's expensive. Uh, but I think it, it, economics now dictate that actually it it is something justifiable that we should be thinking about doing. Mm. Does it excite you the the prospect of kind of using that as a as a base to get to Mars? Do, do, do you kind of buy into the whole humans have to go to Mars um, narrative? I I don't know if I'd, I'd say have to go. We don't have to do anything. We've got plenty of challenges and and issues to resolve here on our home planets so so it's certainly difficult to justify when we say well if we were spending billions on going to mars would that not be better spent on tackling the climate crisis on earth yeah okay yes you can't argue against that but it is inevitable that humankind are going up we're, we're essentially 
are or certainly will be a space-faring species and, and we will be exploring space and Mars is the next step. It's We don't have to go, but it's inevitable that we will. And if, if the technology is there, I think we should try it. And, you know, the moon is is a good stepping stone on our way to Mars for all sorts of reasons. Do you think that there's um, maybe not enough attention paid to the to the uh, unmanned space flight that, that we're currently doing that's exploring the solar system? I'm, I'm just wondering, which, which kind of excites you more, the, the, the prospect of, of humans journeying uh, into space, into Mars, or those kind of, you know, unmanned robotic probes that are exploring, you know, the planets and, and, and their moons? Well, I think, I mean, certainly in the last decade, we, we, we have learned an incredible amount, particularly uh, uh, about the outer solar system from, from these uh, robotic missions, you know, uh, like the, the, the famously like Cassini mission, um, um, uh, exploring uh, Saturn and the moons of Saturn. The images that we, that we see of, of Pluto, for example, we are learning a lot. We don't need to send a human out there with a camera to, to snap photos. Um but there's a limit to what we can learn, uh, uh, you know, without human help or intervention. I mean, Mars is a good example. Uh, we, we have the Mars Curiosity rover uh, chugging along, um, you know, scratching at the surface, um, sending us information about samples that are gathered. But you really need humans there digging down deep, analyzing and carrying out the experiments on the surface of Mars, if we are going to answer important questions like, did life once exist on Mars? You know, it may be that robots can find the answer to this, but I think there are, there are many things that really, technologically, really have to be done by humans, and, and, and the, the two go hand in hand, I think. Obviously, your, your field is uh, physics, and uh, specifically nuclear physics, um, so just, I was just kind of... Um, get your thoughts on um, the kind of unanswered questions? Because there are quite a lot of unanswered questions in physics, obviously, and, and astrophysics and things like that. I was just wondering, what are your kind of, what are the, the unanswered questions that you would most like to know the answers to? Well, there's, you know, there's sort of, you know, what are the answered, uh, unanswered questions that I think do, are the big challenges to science? I'm a theoretical physicist, uh, but, you know, th- there are the big mysteries, you know, what is the nature of dark matter? What is it made of, for example? But I think if it was... You know, if I were on my deathbed and someone said, right, you have a wish, uh, we, we can we can answer some burning question that you have wanted to know. And it's just in just one thing. It would have to be what is the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics? You know, we've had quantum mechanics, this the most powerful theory in all of physics, describing the subatomic world. And we have a dozen different ways of explaining what the heck is going on down at the subatomic level. And we don't know which one of them is right. You know, are there parallel universes? Is there sort of a, a, an instantaneously interconnected quantum field? Are signals traveling back in time? You know, th- there's also there's weirdness in, down at the quantum level. I'd like to know which aspect of the weirdness does nature actually use? Um, you know, uh, it's it's the burning question that I that I keep coming back to now and again throughout my career, and I don't think I'm going to be the person to solve it, but I'd like to to think it will be solved in my lifetime. Could you maybe um, go back a bit and kind of explain exactly what what uh, quantum is? I mean, I, I think probably for a lot of our listeners wouldn't wouldn't really be really sure, and, I, and I'm not really sure. I think it's something really interesting that a lot of us kind of struggle to grasp. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's famously, you know, that I think one of the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, the Danish physicist Niels Bohr said, you know, if you're not astonished by quantum mechanics, then you clearly haven't understood it. 
Uh, you're meant to be astonished. And people say, oh, I can't get my head around that. You know, it's, 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 it's different. No one has got their head around it. Um, it was developed in the 1920s. It's, it came about because physicists realized in the early 20th century that there were phenomena uh, down at the level of atoms and the particles that make up atoms, so way you know, beyond what you can see with the naked eye, that simply couldn't be explained with the physics that was known at the time. You know, the physics that we learn at school that was laid out by people like Galileo and Isaac Newton simply didn't work when you're trying to talk about how atoms move. It's not the same as how um, a tennis ball moves through the air. You know, you can describe a, t- a tennis ball, how hard you hit it, how much you make it spin, how it's going to bounce, how it's going to travel through the air. If you're talking, replace a tennis ball with an atom or an electron, say, which orbits around an atom, an electron behaves very differently from the way, say, a tennis ball uh, behaves. Uh, and in the 1920s, physicists realized that in order to describe the subatomic world, they needed this new mathematical theory, this new type of mechanics that wasn't Newtonian, mechanics, what we call now classical mechanics of the everyday world, but a new quantum mechanics that's based on particles being uh, uh, more ephemeral, more sort of fuzzy. This is this is a theory that's based on probability and chance and uncertainty. N- nothing is solid. Nothing is fixed down at the quantum level. It's, it's, it's very difficult to pin something down. Um, and yet, mathematically, quantum mechanics is incredibly powerful and accurate. Without quantum mechanics, we would not have understood uh, how uh, a lot of physics and chemistry. We would not have modern electronics. We certainly wouldn't have semiconductors and silicon chips. Therefore, we wouldn't be um, recording this podcast because we use modern electronics. So most of our modern technological world is based on quantum mechanics being correct. And yet, at its heart... It's fundamentally counterintuitive. How can an atom be in two places at once? How can something spin clockwise and anticlockwise simultaneously? It's just ridiculous. Even saying it sounds ridiculous. And yet that's how the quantum world behaves. And we have this plethora of different ways of explaining how these things work. We know they do happen in the quantum world, but how uh, is another matter. So these are called the interpretations of quantum mechanics. One of the most uh, popular ones is called the many worlds interpretation, which says that every time you measure, you know, if you want to measure whether a particle is over here or over there, and you see, find it over here, the universe splits in two, in which ca- in case another version of you will have found the particle over there. Uh, and, and so there's a, a up to an infinite number of parallel realities all coexisting because every time the quantum world is faced with a choice, our reality splits into two. Now, that sounds so, so silly, so, so much like science fiction nonsense. They think surely hard-nosed scientists don't really believe that. And yet many would argue that is actually the most sensible way of explaining things because everything else requires further assumptions and complications on top of it. I don't know if that's correct. Uh, there are many other interpretations. I'd like to know how is it that the atom can be in two places at once? What is actually going on? I don't think we've been smart enough yet to figure out the way nature plays its quantum tricks. And I'd like to think that one day we will be. We've tried everything so far. Lots of very smart people have thought very hard about it, uh, but we're still not there yet. To, uh, to me, it, it kind of reminds me of um, the uh, standard model and, and kind of Newtonian physics then being challenged by relativity and things like that. Is, is, is it kind of in, in that same realm? 
Um, well, of course, the, 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 the standard model of, of particle physics uh, is the culmination of nearly a century's work starting from quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics by the late 1920s um, developed into what's called quantum field theory. Uh, quantum field theory then uh, evolved into uh, uh, bigger mathematical structures that were describing the forces of nature. Uh, we ended up with this, the standard model of particle physics, which is essentially a collection of, 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 of uh, mathematical theories that describe all the forces of nature apart from the force of gravity. Gravity is the odd one out. That's described by a completely different theory, going to Einstein, of course, general relativity. And um, we have this, uh, this is another, another holy grail, another thing to add to the wish list of physicists wanting to find an answer to. How does the force of gravity fit in with the other forces of nature? Um, we're, we're looking for a theory of quantum gravity, which would connect up quantum mechanics and, and obviously culminating in the standard model with general relativity. Uh, and, and we don't know how to do it because they're very, very different theories. The maths is very different. The, 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 the concepts of the way they describe reality is very different. Uh, but we still have hope that one day we'll find either one has to be tweaked or the other has to be tweaked or that we ditch both of them and start with something else. They're both correct, but clearly they can't be the whole story because, uh, you know, nature doesn't, you know, there must be some unified picture of, of, of reality ultimately. There's plenty more work to do, basically. <laughs> I was I was hoping to uh, delve a bit into your your new novel because you've um, you've released a novel called Sunfall, which which is fiction, and it's, yeah. it's your, your first work work of fiction, as far as I'm aware. Um, and I was wondering, um, was it first of all, was it difficult to make the leap into fiction, and second of all, was it difficult to work out what aspect of science you you would you would weave into the 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 uh, the, the uh, novel? Um, yeah, so I mean, say it's my first work of fiction. I'm not sure if it's my last yet, but we'll we'll, we'll have to see. Um, it was it was a lot harder than I anticipated. I think I I, I decided to write. I mean, it's a, it's a science fiction novel, so it's sort of near future, hard sci-fi. It was basically the sort of book that I would have liked to read. Certainly, I, I that I would have read as a as a as a young man. You know, I grew up on the science fiction of. Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and Larry Niven and Robert Heinlein, you know, the classic sci-fi writers of the 60s and 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, they painted a picture full of science. This, this is not sort of fantasy. This is not um, sort of, uh, you know, dystopian future where a virus has wiped out most of the humanity and a group of teenagers with superpowers are going around killing zombies, which tends to be most of science fiction these days, particularly on Netflix. Um so I thought, yeah, great. Why not try my hand at writing a science fiction thriller? How hard can it be? And it turns out to be actually very hard and very different from writing nonfiction. Uh, luckily, I had um, uh, an editor at my publisher's Transworld, a chap called Simon Taylor, who was incredibly helpful and supportive and prepared to roll up his sleeves and basically teach me the tools of the trade. You know, writing a novel is is a craft and you, you have to learn a lot of the uh, the tricks of the trade writing fiction it, it, it requires all sorts of skills i remember um simon telling me for example show don't tell which is you know for anyone who's written fiction will know what that means you know you don't explicitly spell out 
something, someone's feelings or someone's actions. You you have to sort of have it come through the narrative more subtly. Uh, 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 and, you know, the, the, the very first attempt was, uh, uh, was the comment that came back was, Jim, it's not a physics lecture followed by a line of dialogue followed by another physics lecture. Uh, you know, I don't care. <laughs> I, want, I want you to, to, to carry along, along with the narrative. I want to believe this imagined world you've created. I want to empathize with the characters. So gradually, I, I sort of, I, I, after the fourth or fifth <laughs> draft, I got a lot better at it. I found I was quite good at writing the sort of action you know, the page turning aspect of it. It's a very, this is very much a thriller. It's very much in the vein of the, you know, Stephen King school of writing, who is, who is another absolutely wonderful author that I, I, I've always enjoyed reading. Um, but of course, it's science fiction. So I've put a lot of science into it. And um, I enjoyed doing that. And I enjoyed trying to get the science right. So the Sunfall is set in 2041. So not too far in the distant future, which means that the science we know today uh, is is likely to be realized technologically 20 years from now. And uh, one of the advantages for someone like me, though I'm, I'm involved in, A, I'm involved in, in a lot of interdisciplinary research uh, here at Surrey. I did it with quantum, I'm now involved in doing work on, in, in an area called quantum biology, not quantum physics or quantum chemistry. So I talk to people from lots of different fields, but also through my science communication work, you know, presenting the Life Scientific on Radio 4 means that I have interviewed almost now 200 scientists uh, uh, who are at the top of their game. And it means I... I know what is the exciting, cutting-edge research that's going on today and what the world may well look like tomorrow. So I feel I've been able to sort of paint quite a realistic picture of what the world would look like, you know, with AI and augmented reality and artificial intelligence and quantum computers and dark matter and all sorts of goodies like that. So it's been a tremendous adventure writing the book. Um, Yeah, it is interesting to kind of think um, about you know, what our scientific knowledge would be like 30 years from now, isn't it? I mean, I was just wondering, um, just, just to kind of finish on, um, what, what do you think are the kind of the biggest challenges f- facing humanity and our planet at the moment? Um, and do, do you think we gen- genuinely have the, uh, have the power to, to solve them? I'm an optimist. Um, d- despite the uh, political climate, let's say, in this country today and indeed the world, uh, and also despite the many of the, the, challenges, the challenges that face humanity in the 21st century, I think science does have many of the answers and indeed engineering. You know, what, um, one of the nice things I've taken on doing recently is that I'm a judge on the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. It's, just, it's like the Nobel Prize for Engineering. Uh, and I get to see just how important engineering is and technological innovations are if we are going to tackle the biggest problems. I mean, climate change, I think, is without doubt the biggest issue facing humanity in my lifetime. Um, and we can see already some of the effects that it's it's causing around the world. But I still think science and engineering can provide a solution. It's more to do with political will, um, economics, public acceptability. It's, it's not that scientists and engineers don't know what to do. There's all sorts of ideas. Uh, we just have to come together as a species to, to, to tackle them. So climate change is one. Of course, there's the, the, always think like the threat of pandemics, um, 
there are very, so, so many issues to do with sort of diseases and poverty around the world and, and, and dwindling uh, resources. Um, science and engineering themselves throw up challenges that we have to be mindful of, you know, as we develop things like artificial intelligence, we need to be aware of what the implications are um, ethically about that. The same goes for things like genetic engineering. Um, uh, but by and large, I think science is a force for good, provided we put it to good use. Uh, and I, 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 I refuse to be completely disheartened and disillusioned uh, by <laughs> some of the problems facing us. I think we will find answers. <laughs> well, I think that, that positive note's quite a good uh, note to leave it on, Jim. Um, uh, thanks very much for speaking to me today. And also, uh, good luck with the book. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Thank you very much indeed. That was Jim Al-Khalili. You can find out more about the latest space stories in the October issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. If you're just starting out in astronomy, October is a great time to see Cassiopeia, a constellation of five bright stars in the shape of a W. Cassiopeia should be clearly visible, even from a light-polluted city. The constellation is circumpolar, meaning it's always visible in UK skies, making it a good reference point for when you're first starting to learn to navigate the night sky. Finding Cassiopeia is usually very easy. It will be high in the sky, so look up and slightly northward, and you should find five bright stars in the shape of a W. Though, bear in mind, it might be on its side or upside down from where you're standing. If you have a pair of binoculars, take a closer look at each of the stars, and you should be able to make out they all have different colours. For those trying to step up their astronomy game, Cassiopeia is also host to several beautiful star clusters that are visible under moderately dark skies. Grab a star atlas and see if you can find NGC 663, a bright cluster just to the left of the W. So that's it from us this month. You can also find out more in the October issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we reveal the winners of the Insight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition, take an observational tour along the Milky Way and find out the best places to observe in Eastern Europe. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with and discover the best things to see after dark. From all of us at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.